Hello, and welcome to I Am Dad podcast with your fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. 30 minutes of wisdom, information, resources, and nuggets to help you on your fatherhood journey. Or maybe you're just curious and want to hear some real talk about fatherhood, family, and the minds of men. Well, guess what? We got you too. Sit back, grab your pad and pen, and maybe even bring a little something to sip on. Enjoy 30 straight minutes of fatherhood, family, and fun with the fatherhood authority. Kenneth Braswell. Welcome to I Am Dad Podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell. Thank you for joining me on another Sunday morning as we continue to bring you critical conversations, um, innovative and progressive conversations about this thing we call fatherhood. In the context of family, y'all, because just because we talk about fathers don't mean that we don't care about children. It doesn't mean that we don't care about moms. We care about the entire ecosystem of our community. And dads are part of that. And that's why we do this, because we need to convince you to help you understand that we are part of the family ecosystem and the community ecosystem. So filling you up with information and awareness with respect to what's going on with our dads is what we're here to do. And I bring voices from around the country that I've been in this case, like today, longtime friends with and other experts and researchers and practitioners and dads and every perspective that we can bring, even moms, to hear their perspective. Um, I always tell people this story and I'll briefly say because I don't think I've said it in a while. Um, I re- we used to do this class called Standing in the Gap, Single Mothers Raising Boys. And <clears throat> one of the moms asked me one time, like, she said she was curious about signing up for the class because a man was teaching the class. And I said, what made you hesitant about that? And she said, um, I just couldn't understand from what perspective you would be talking about single moms from. And I said, well, your assumption is that you have the only perspective of a single mom. I have a perspective too, and that is that of a son who had a single mom. So I can tell you things about you that you don't know yourself because I've experienced it. And there were things that I could tell if I could tell my mom today about how I processed her, how I listened to her, how I dealt with her, that would have made your life a whole lot easier if a man would have told you how boys think about women, regardless of whether or not they're their mother or just another woman woman in their life. And she was like, never thought about that. And I said, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. And so, but my guest today, Dr. Janice Stevenson, she is a licensed psychologist and she is in Maryland and she's been doing this since 1984. She received her bachelor's and master's and a bachelor's, master's and her doctorate in psychology um, from the University of Maryland at College Park. She's been in private practice since 1984, and she's in the great city of Baltimore. And for over 30 years, she has worked with trauma recovery. Her clients have included foster and delinquent youth persons facing criminal charges, abuse victims of various types, abandonment, physical, emotional, sexual, um, and she is also working with persons facing life-changing and life-altering circumstances like divorce, marriage, job changes, and other things that happen in our lives. Her work is client-centered, evidence-based, and spiritually grounded. And this is what I love about her. Her therapy is a growth-enhancing experience, not only for you, but for her as well. Dr. Stevenson, how are you doing? 
I'm great. I totally enjoyed that introduction. I felt proud of myself. That was nice. <laughs> if you like me, when somebody does my bio, I was like, who is that guy? Who are they talking about? I'm exactly. Not, I want to meet that person. <laughs> right. He's pretty impressive. I like to meet him. And so <laughs> thank you so much. And she is, um, I could tell so many stories about her that is, 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 is ridiculous. But I'm going to tell you um, my I don't, it definitely wasn't my first story with her because I met her before this time. But my writing book started um, with going to meet with her and her staff in Baltimore during the Freddie Gray um, incident. And so and me and my good friend David Miller uh, went to meet with her and her staff to talk about what was going on, what we can do, how we can help. And she doesn't know that that was the um, incident that actually propelled me into writing um, books for children. And so um, when I came home from that incident, Dr. Stevenson, well, what happened is David and I got was interviewed before we, I think it was the day before we came to your office, he got interviewed by CNN. And I was standing in the background and he was being interviewed while my wife and my son, who was then six years old, was watching it on TV. And my son saw me on TV and he saw the backdrop of all of the army people and police and all that stuff. And he asked my wife, why is daddy with all of those police? Remember, he's six years old. And he's seeing his father on TV and he's seeing all of these police. And my wife said, you know what? Wait till daddy gets home. He'll explain to you what was going on. So when I got home, I wasn't in the door two seconds before he ran up on me and said, daddy, why were you with all of those police? And I looked down at him and I said, you know what? Let me get settled. Let me put my stuff down, get settled. And then I'll come out and tell you. And I went into the room to get settled. And what I realized, Dr. Stevenson, in the room was while I had an answer to what was going on in Baltimore, I did not have a six-year-old answer. And I had to think about what a six-year-old answer was. And so what I decided to do was to tell him and talk to him about what was going on, not why it was going on. And the what was going on was protest. And so I was able to articulate to him what protest meant. And my analogy to him was, remember when I tell you you can't play your Xbox and you have to do your homework and you go into your room and you cross your arms and you stop and you have an attitude? And he goes, yeah, I'll say, that's the protest. That's you voicing your opinion based on whether or not you like what you heard or you did not like what you heard. That was, that is what was going on in Baltimore. People were expressing their opinion about something that happened that they did not agree with. And so, and he went off about his way. And I was telling David the story and David said, yo, you got to write a children's book about that. And out came daddy, there's a noise outside. And I wrote that book on that conversation. And it was about a black family 
um, being in the middle of unrest and them talking and, and their children waking up in the middle of the night to a fire burning, uh, a car burning outside the window. They woke up the next morning and the mom and dad taught them about protests. And so they never talked about the, they never talked about the why, they talked about the what. And so, and I just want you to know that that came out. I'm actually, I don't know if you ever got a copy of that book, but I'm gonna send you a copy of that book. It's my biggest seller. And it's the one that continues to move that's in school. And ironically, in certain spaces across the country is actually on the banned list because of the front cover. There's a silhouette of a people marching by and one of them is carrying a sign saying Black Lives Matter. And because of wow. that, the book is banned. So that's my story with Dr. Stevenson and we've encountered each other in several other spaces. But tell me how you doing. Let's talk about that. Well, I'm doing okay, actually. I'm an old lady now, so there's that. And I got all of the pre-existing conditions that get me privileged positions when I go on the airplane. So that part's okay, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still working. And that's the thing that has blown my mind lately. I was really prepared to retire in 2017, and I didn't. I said, I'll just work a few more years. And then COVID hit, and everybody and their mama came out of the closet about having anxiety, having traumas, having fears. So at this point, you're gonna say, what are you talking, what are you doing? I have 75 clients. Mm. Wow. I have, every week, I have 75 clients. Okay. Wow, that's a lot. Hang on, hang on. Next sentence, at least a third of them are men. And that would be an increase of what you are tip, what you typically see. But I typically see a very definite increase. I tr- we turn away seven to eight clients a day because I'm full. So mm-hmm. send to other practices. We we send away seven seven or eight calls a day to other practices. So what's going on, do you believe, in the environment now that is driving so many people to counseling? One thing is that there's a, there's a loneliness that people were able to experience through the isolation of COVID. They had nothing to distract themselves from their inner being. And when they were left with the company of themselves, they didn't like who they met. Mm. And men in particular didn't have resources to deal with what they couldn't tolerate in themselves. And so it became quite problematic. More men started uh, threatening suicide, more men uh, became players, and more men were wounding women because the only emotion that they comfortably knew how to express, uh, especially socially acceptable in the world that they understood, was rage and anger. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't because they couldn't get to anybody else. They couldn't go to the nightclubs to pick up somebody. They couldn't, you know, uh, go to church and act like they're there for Christ, but they're really there to see what pretty safe women want to be rescued. They couldn't. Um, they couldn't go any place that they normally would go. They couldn't even go to the gym to work off tension that they were normally used to working off on a day-to-day basis. And fortunately. Um, when Biden took over the message about getting help, 
There are therapists. We're making special waivers for therapists to keep working. If you can find someone who works in this or that or the other field, psychiatry, social work, or psychology, go call them. We, we, we got permission to do virtual therapy. So I haven't been in my office to see a client since 2020. I'm completely virtual. Mm-hmm. And like I said, this is just an overflow of clients. I've had up to five people working with me in my office. We're all virtual and we all were full. So people started coming into therapy. And mm-hmm. there, there are two areas in particular that have really flooded us. There are more people asking for couples therapy, which I can't attribute to COVID, but I can attribute it to the changes in perspectives about maleness and about males in relationship and about males and emotions, which, you know, I know, I attribute that change to the work that you and David and Sean and all the other guys, Patrick, all the other guys that I consider my sons have been doing all these years, you know, including Obama's work with my brother's keepers. We've really started seeing a change in the culture. So men come in saying, I have a guy who came in maybe two months ago, really neat guy, lost his job, um, but had a disability payment because of an accident he had that contributed to him losing his job. And he had been out of work for a year. He came in saying, I want to work on some of the issues in my family so I can break the cycle. That's the first. I've not had somebody come in saying, I recognize my family has issues. I recognize my family has patterns that are problems. And I want you to help me figure out how to break the cycle. I've got two daughters. And he laughed. He said, yep, I'm a girl, Dad. I've got two daughters. And I want them to have a healthier, saner life than my grandmother had, who really contributed to raising him, than my mother had, who did the best she could on a daily basis. She was a single mom. Uh, And than my sister had. I'm going to break that cycle. And that's what he's working on. So we've talked through his life and identify the patterns and the uh, glitches and the things that he has already started unconsciously repeating without recognizing that they are the same thing that his grandfather did or his, or his father did. Mm-hmm. I think if you had to identify what good came out, came out of COVID, um, particularly for men in this space, it would be the forced time of self-reflection. Right to realize that they are not on an island by themselves, um, and that it is an absolute need for them to be able to express what they're feeling. Is that some of what you're saying? And not having the words. Hmm. And we used to talk about that. They didn't have the emotional words to label these feelings. We only teach boys anger and aggression. We don't teach boys hurt, sad, lonely, lost, confused. Because if, if, if our boys would do those emotions, oh, there you go being a girl. Don't be acting like no girl up in here. You know, mm-hmm. or 
don't be an old wuss. Now, come on, boy, man it up, man it up. Right. And so those other emotions, they now had to come face to face with. And the number of men who were not aware of how much grieving they had not done for significant people in their lives. Right. Grandmothers in particular, when grandmothers died, the men were not prepared for the lost feeling, just wandering through space with no grounding and no anchor point. Yeah. Well, and so COVID, COVID said, look in the mirror and see what you got. Mm, I think it was through COVID that we watched um, significant and influential, particularly black men, lose mothers and grandmothers and have that really impact them in ways that they struggle to talk about. Kanye was one of them. Right. Because when he right. started to go in the kind of what people would describe an off kind of position, it was as a result of him not being able That's to. That's one word people him. use. Right. That's one um, word people use. Yeah. Losing his mom and then DMX with his grandmother. And I believe exactly. Will Smith with his grandmother as well. Uh, I think Will Smith also, I think he was Will, might not have been Will, but uh, he's sticking in my head for some reason. Uh, Will, I think Will's dad. His dad died during that time. Right. And so these, to your point, like, you know, being able, being forced into this area of self-reflection and having to uh, recognize that, you know, that you are part of a body, which has always been the struggle for the responsible fatherhood space. And I just told someone this morning, I was like, you know, if you're an agency out here saying that you're working with families and you're not working with fathers, you're not working with families. Exactly. And I'll give you one other contributing factor that came as a surprise to me, and this is a conversation I've been having with some of my colleagues. One of the main contributors to producing men's hunger now for mental health is Donald Trump. <laughs> Which is a yes, whole exactly. Yeah, yeah. Whole yeah. Number. But the, at, as he became president, there was so much psychiatric and psychological conversation about him that that CNN and, and uh, MSNBC and local news uh, programs would try to explain behavior that was so aberrant to what we knew to be normal life that the terms narcissistic personality disorder or sociopathic personality disorder or borderline personality disorder, those, no, those words are not in the common vernacular. But those are words that my people, that my friends, you know, my colleagues use. That's our speaking, normal speaking language. But the general public doesn't speak that. And people trying to explain um, the behavior that he demonstrated that was not common went to that end of the mental health spectrum for, for explanation. And then you started hearing people say, well, I think my boyfriend is, is narcissistic. No, your boyfriend is self-centered and so are you. But self-centered and narcissism are not the same thing. If you well, could I explain think my that, boyfriend's was bipolar. Yeah, because I, I was going to say I think that. my boyfriend's bipolar. And it's like, <laughs> no, your boyfriend is PTSD because he was in a war zone and he saw his best friends get killed in front of him. PTSD and bipolar are not the same thing. Hmm. Hey, talk so, about, that's a word, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that word narcissist because you're right. You, you, 
we have heard that term more in the social space than I've ever heard ever in my life. It took me a minute. I literally had to go and see what it meant, right? Because I'm like, I've heard people say, oh, like you said, my man is narciss- is a narcissist or he's a narcissist. Explain to people what that means and what it, what it, what it, what, how it affects people, how, how it affects people. I'll give you the mythology that helps people understand it. The, the myth of nar- narcissists is this very handsome, very beautiful prince walking through the forest and he sees this reflection in a pond and he notices how beautiful he is in his reflection and he starts gazing at his reflection and then he gets lost in his reflection and the more he stares at his reflection in the pond, he starts to see tiny flaws in what he thought was perfection when he first started looking and then the more he looked, the more caught up he got in finding these little uh, idiosyncratic differences and these little glitches and you know these little small things that suddenly became very large and he could not take his eyes off of these flaws in the perfection that he thought he saw initially. And then he realized, oh my God, other people can see this because it became bigger and bigger in his mind. Other people can see this. And he built a shield around him so that people would only see what he wanted them to see because he was stuck in this image of his flawed, ugly, dirty, disgusting self in the pond. And he died there because he could not leave it. Now, that's a a metaphor for a narcissist. They see only their ugliness. They present to the world only their perfection. And they forbid anybody to pierce that that shield. The problem with narcissism is that the foundation for it occurs in the first three to five months of life. So if you have a baby who had really inconsistent parenting, really unstable environments, if you have a, a baby one to three months old and the mother doesn't acknowledge that baby, heaven forbid she should have postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety. Because if she can't attend to that baby and give that baby a reflection of his mass, of his uniqueness, of his amazing beauty, of his um, capacity to be an incredibly special human being that mom falls in love with and then dad falls in love with. If he can't have that, he has no reflection. He can't even find the pond. And he has to protect the world from seeing that all this there is ugly. It's so ugly, everyone rejected it. No one wanted to be the reflection for him. You were talking about um, bipolar disorder and other disorders. What are some of the disorders that people confuse those things with narcissism? How do those things get confused? Well, so what I mentioned before was self-centeredness. Self-centeredness is not a mental disorder. You can be obsessively, compulsively self-centered, but that's still not narcissism. And narcissism is in the category that's called personality disorder. And it's one of the, that category of diagnoses are some of the hardest things to treat because they're not in your conscious mind. Okay, I'm I'm gonna be real English in this conversation right here, okay? Birth to, to six, um, most of the diagnoses you're going to get are going to be in the conscious mind 
of a person. They're aware of feeling sad. They're aware of feeling angry. They're aware of feeling hurt after six. But before six, you don't have actually vocabulary or access to cognition that allows you to explain or experience what you're going through. Those are harder to treat. There are infant and toddler specialists. I was one when I was working with kids a long time ago. Uh, infant and toddler specialists who work with infants and babies. Mm-hmm. You know, three, four, five, six years old. Um, and, and it's great work, but you, you can make a huge difference because you reshape that personality and give that person's personality a chance to develop. After six-ish or so, you're aware that you feel sad. You're aware that you feel hurt. Those two contribute to depression. You're aware that you're scared. You're aware that, that, that there's a sense of danger and you don't quite know where it's coming from. That contributes to the diagnoses that are in the anxiety category. PTSD is in that category. Mm-hmm. PTSD and acute stress disorder, although there's some more coming and I'm really eager for them to get here because there's one called developmental uh, trauma disorder that goes across the different developmental stages of a child. But the P- PTSD and, and acute stress disorder are when you experience life-threatening and life-altering experiences. And, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, they can be something as simple as seeing and hearing your parents have violent fights, physical fights, or uh, verbally uh, offensive and, and, and threatening fights where you become afraid that daddy's going to kill mommy or mommy's going to kill daddy, or you hear uh, mom and grandma and auntie talking uh, after dinner while they're cleaning up the kitchen or while they're sitting and, and, and chatting while somebody else is, maybe the man's cleaning up the kitchen, and they're saying really derogatory terms and really uh, demeaning and disrespectful terms. Children hear those conversations, and it frightens them. Mm-hmm. And if there's no adult saying, wait, the baby's standing right there. Can somebody pick the baby up and explain we don't really want him to get hit by a truck or by a bus when he goes out of the house? We're just mad at him right now when we're venting. Mm-hmm. Most parents don't notice that the children overheard it and they become frightened. One of the most uh, uh, to retain, the, the situations I've retained the longest is I had a client who could hear his parents in their bedroom at night. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think about what sex sounds like when the parents think they ain't nobody paying attention, ain't nobody watching, that little boy thought daddy was killing mama every night. Every night. And he would just lay in the bed, terrified that he would not see mama the next morning when he woke up. And he would be awake. He would get up out of the room every now and then and go over to the door. And he went to open the door. And he could not because he was too frightened. Mm -hmm. And he would get back in the bed and go right to sleep. And he'd get up the next morning. When he went into the kitchen and mama was in there getting, you know, stuff ready for them to leave for school and stuff, he would run to his mama. He was like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. He would run to his mama and hug his mama because he was so scared she had been killed during the night. And they could never figure out why he never really liked daddy. Mm. He was a fully grown man before he was able to make peace with his dad, who was there every day, who was involved in his life very actively. But because he had that nighttime experience that nobody knew about. You know? Wow. Yeah. 
So when you talk about, and this is, man, this is sending me in a whole different, <clears throat> several different directions. I'm going to try to keep it harnessed in, but it's so much of this that has to be unpacked. And I'm definitely going to bring you back on so we can unpack some of these things because I think people need to kind of be more aware of the intricacies of mental health and what it looks like and what they should know about it. Like we speak a lot in the history of teaching individuals and humans how to be parents about the physical aspect of being a parent, but we don't talk about the mental aspect of being a parent. Right. And so parents are generational aspect. Mm, right. Well, right. Which is where I'm going. Right. And okay, so good. I made this statement to someone the other day, we were talking about black men and we were talking about, um, post-traumatic slave syndrome and we were, I was talking to them about how we have been conditioned over time particularly black people in this country to respond to certain things in certain environments because of what we experienced during slavery and I made this statement and I don't have any evidence that it's true. It's just based on my work and what I see and how it feels to me as I'm continuing to work with people. And I said, we have always kind of talked about having to change our culture and change how we um, do what we do and really pay more attention to the culture of black people, that there are things that we do in our culture that we need to just stop, right? We need to stop our boys from wearing their pants below their belts. We need to stop rappers from using the B and the H word. We need to stop this. We need to stop that. And I said, I get this strange feeling sometimes that we have evolved past the ability to be able to impact culture because that traumatic experience has now become part of our DNA. Right. And it is much more difficult to change DNA than it is to oh. change culture. Yeah. Is it? If you, if you want to accept it, it's DNA that needs to be changed. The king and queen is still in us. <clears throat> but the king and queen is trying to evolve in a different culture. And mm. so in some ways, the king and queen are attempting to be in Rome, do what Romans do. So throughout our time in this, in this country, we've had our music. And in the past, our music served so many survival-based purposes. <clears throat> I love in, in the movie Harriet where she's singing the messages that are the guides to come through the uh, Underground Railroad mm -hmm. to come out. And that was one use of music. And we could just as easily use that in our rap, but people don't because we haven't told the current population of artists and songwriters that that's a viable use. We mm. used music to hold on to the religion that we knew from when we were in our home country. Mm -hmm. And we held on to it, and it became a conglomerate of all these African tribal practices expressed through the music, because it was the only thing we had in common. As we continued that, it hit 
the judgments of the larger society, it was called the majority, that's actually a minority. And as we continue to grow, like call and response, I remember going to Sunday school at the United Methodist Church doing call and response as a way to teach biblical principles or to teach uh, passages in the Bible that they wanted us to recall. And church services, while some people want to call them entertainment-based now, mm-hmm. but that rhythm yes. was a calling from another part of me. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that got subsumed under a more commercial arena, so it became something else. So what got handed down, we held on to as tight as we could. What we couldn't find an outlet for is the, that, that racial anger. How in the world can men go out the door every morning to, to go to work? How can you, when we're terrified you're going to get killed before you come back in? That's been a part of our existence since we got here. Mm-hmm. We have no, no outlet for that. We come up with, I mean, Ruben Dave came up with his um, uh, tips to teach Tempe. parents how to help mm-hmm. their children survive a, pl- a police stop. Get home safe. Uh, why, yeah. do, why do we have to do that? Right. Now, one of the things I see happening in the society, uh, I look from George Floyd to now, we said they have to change racism. And we realized that white people need to talk to white people. It can't be black, brown, and yellow people talking to white people. So we got Trump, and now racism is out in the open. It's for everybody to see. I want to do a Kevin Hart routine here. And just see, you cannot miss the blatant racism. Right. And you can see that it's white doing it, and white are criticizing it, white are commenting on it, white are saying we have to change it. So all we got to do is stay black and, you know, the 21 uh, free and what's the other word? It was, it was a, a phrase when I was growing up. I'm 21 black and free, right? Yes. All I have to do is say to over 21 black and free and mm-hmm. slavery will gradually evolve away and we don't have to act like we're holding that anger in our DNA because it's not. It's simply in the generational lessons that are passed down from one generation to the other. Our boys, our girls are angry, hurt, and scared. Mm-hmm. And we need to provide them more outlets. The groups that the Campaign for Black Male Achievement had all around the country were a powerful strategy to change the programming and change the understanding of the messages and change the modeling that they were seeing. Mm-hmm. Obama being president was a powerful tool to change the modeling that people were seeing. And he was able to stand tall despite those counter messages that were coming from the society. You and Ron Kirk, who is someone I grew up with, mm-hmm. being out there uh, to say, you don't have to go that path. There's mm-hmm. these other paths you can go. Let us help you. There's a light over here. Come over here. Gave another way to go. Now there's another generation coming up because every five to ten years, there's another cohort starting. So we have to keep getting back in there. We cannot let that go. Right. Our and that's, boys and our girls are worth it. Yeah, and that's the problem. You know, this morning we were, we never got to this conversation, but I was in an interview this morning talking about a Million Fathers March, and we were talking about Atlanta, you know, and crime is escalating in Atlanta again. 
And so, you know, and people are not able to discern what's happening. And my fear always when that happens in any urban center around the community, people begin to start saying, if they just had fathers in their lives, they, you know, they wouldn't be out here wilding out. It's like, so it's kind of like, even in my mind, that's a narrative that has to change. You said something earlier. And one of the things I say to, um, I've begun to literally change my dialogue and terms that I use because I know how, um, how, how harming some of these terms are. Like I now, I absolutely hate the word fatherless. I, I absolutely hate the word fatherless. Why? Because 100% of all biological children born on the face of this earth has a father. The question right. isn't if he exists, it is where he exists. But because we never want to ask the question, where is he? We just make the assumption that he doesn't exist. The problem is we begin to tell our children that their fathers don't exist. And that's an untruth. And they don't know how to reconcile the fact that he does exist. And the very reason that you're going through what you're going through right now is because he exists. And how do we begin to start talking to our youth and our community about reframing the fact that what we're dealing with right now is not fatherlessness. We're dealing with father absence. We're dealing with the issue of the absence of fathers and men in the lives of our children. We can address that. I want to add to that. We're also dealing with wounded mothers Mm -hmm. who vent their anger and hurt at the absence of a man that they loved enough to open up to. Well, two of them, not only the man, not only the father, their own, the absence of their own father and the absence of the father of their children. Exactly. And therefore, where do they learn that they don't have to be male aggression Mm. to protect themselves? Because women will go male aggression in me in a minute. Mm -hmm. And women are more lethal when they go aggression. So you've got that absent father who is somewhere mm-hmm. and you've also got that wounded mother who is bleeding and can't afford to bleed because the baby's there right yeah so that whole like you said when you, you work with the fathers and the, that doesn't exclude the mothers the family unit is wounded and what happens is that every year there's another cohort coming up Every year, there's another group of kids coming up. So you address the layer you had. I mean, if you think of how many fathers have come across your path in the time you've been doing Fathers Incorporated. Mm-hmm. And every year, there's another batch. You know, I, I worked in the state for, for Maryland Children and Child and Adolescent Services for a long time. Trained as many therapists as I could, worked in as many programs as I could. And I realized in foster care, oh my God, Every year, there's another batch. Right. One of the clients, one of the girls I worked with when she was 15, had a baby, graduated from foster care, had two more children, started living her life, was doing better than she had been doing, was doing okay. Grew up, got 
really good job, was managing her life, had decent enough relationships. She was doing better than she had been doing and better than she would have done without foster care in her life. And then her son got wooed, got killed by a police officer. Hmm. And now she's honest to goodness. She searched for me to find me, to work with me again. She said I could hear her. And now we're trying to help her recover. But the point being that her son, how do I say this? If we understood that the work is a continuous continuum, Mm -hmm. that there are no breaks in it, Mm -hmm. then she would not have been cut adrift after she came out of foster care. There would have been something to pick her up and bring her into adult life. So she still would have been wrapped in a caregiving, loving, growth-enhancing space so she could continue to grow. Her goal was to parent differently. Mm -hmm. It's still her goal from when she was 15. And she's now 30-something, 40-something. And her goal is still to be different. She's got this dream person. And she's still angry as I'll get out at men. Because men keep disappointing her. Men keep letting her down. And And I say to her, can it be that you both are wounded, that you both are disappointed? Can I be that you both want each other to hold? Right, right. Which, you know, then also leans into this whole notion of you talked about earlier. And, and you know, we, you and I have always kind of pressed this, this, this um, issue of, you know, not having the words to express how we feel. I think that we spend a lot of time on both men and women separately, giving them the words and the space to kind of heal to a certain extent. But we haven't found a collective language that allows both men and women to be vulnerable and not be so angry. Together. Yes. That's a whole nother piece of work. Whole nother piece of work. And we can plant the seed. We can nurture that soil so that those who are coming right behind us can see that and pick that up. There is great research going on on marriage, on the language of love, on the scripture, the spirituality of love like biblically-based marriages, there's much research going on on that. Mm-hmm. And the issue now is to translate it to the front line. You and I both know Joe James, and he has a program in Baltimore, the Center for Urban Families. Mm-hmm. His program started as a men's rights program because he was a staunch advocate for father's rights and and, and advocates in the, in the courtroom with them, and it, it grew and grew and grew. And now it's a program for the whole family. And there's a, I'm trying to think of the guy's last name, but there's a, a researcher, he and his wife, I'll get you his name because I can't think of it right now, uh, did research at Joe's Center for Urban Families in Baltimore. Okay. Researching families, couples, they didn't have to be married. They were together. They were trying to improve the quality of their relationship. They had a child. They were trying to improve the quality of their parenting. They were fresh out of prison. They were fresh out of mental health hospitals. They were trying to improve the qualities of their lives. 
And the research that, the research that he acquired, he and his wife acquired uh, through the, the clients that come into the Center for Urban Families, uh, became the foundational principles in his research. So the work is continuing. That's now available for the next generation coming up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I use their work. I, I, I ask, them, ask my clients to buy their books because they really are good references for how to be healthier. Yeah. How to grow into who you say you want to be. Right. There's so much. We got um, a few minutes <laughs> and that's just so much. But I don't want to leave without talking about this as well, because I think it's critical. And that is this whole notion of trauma-informed care, right? And so the clearinghouse is create. we're creating two documents now that kind of speak about trauma-informed care, particularly for researchers and practitioners. And the other day I was reading both of them and just kind of going through them and not just my my whole insides was just going crazy. And I kept saying to myself, you got to walk, you got to crawl before you walk, you got to crawl before you walk, because that thing that you're looking for in these two briefs is a whole brief in and of itself several times over. And this is where, and this is what was driving me crazy. Because both of the briefs was kind of talking about the need for trauma-informed care, which is critical. We need to start doing human services and taking into consideration the traumas that people go through. And then we need to talk to researchers because they need to understand that talking and getting bland, plain XY questions from people often don't include their trauma or they do and you're not recognizing them as answers that have been affected by that trauma. Go ahead. Nope, nope, nope. Not accurate. Okay. Correct me. My whole, my, my whole career has seen the evolution of trauma-informed care. When I started out in the 70s and early 80s, there was no such thing as trauma-informed care. There mm-hmm. now is there active research centers, especially in the foster care and juvenile justice system. There's a program in Massachusetts, Bessel von der Kamps. I think I said that last name right is one of the prime researchers. Uh, he has a just, Justice Institute, I think it's called. I'll get the right name to you. Uh, they have done nothing but research on trauma-informed care. They've developed the, the foundational research for the presentation of a, of a developmental trauma disorder to go to American Psychiatric Association, American Psychological Association to change the DSM to include the, those child's child-specific traumas that impact the development of the personality. There are many, most um, clinics and uh, psychiatric facilities and residential treatment centers and uh, drug-addicted treatment centers now do trauma-informed care. It's also called behavioral uh, mental health, behavioral health services, um, integrated integrated medical services where you take mental health and medical merge it together. Remember, that's what I was doing at Total Healthcare when we did it. Take mental health and medical services, put them together, add substance abuse to it so that you have a wraparound treatment approach to treat not just the person, but the whole family, thus the whole community. Mm -hmm. And so it's out there. Now, 
It may have different interpretations based on who's doing it, but the, the research is there. People need to read it. Mm-hmm. The, um, and I haven't seen any children's books, by the way, that speak to, uh, I don't understand why this happened to me. That kind of question. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that may be mine to write. We'll, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the research is there and it gets, the research gets, gets um, more detailed and more uh, massive at the same time. Like Bessel's work went from just interviewing foster kids and, ju- and juvenile justice kids to looking at the impact on the brain. He now has a whole separate field of study over here about how trauma, especially long-term trauma, <clears throat> chronic and repeated trauma, impacts the brain chemistry because it changes how the brain functions. Mm-hmm. If we don't get in there and relieve that trauma and resolve that trauma, the brain chemistry and how, and how the brain sends directions to the rest of your body changes. The, the field of oncology, um, high blood pressure, let me do it this way. There are some um, illnesses that now the whole medical field knows are affected negatively by health disparities. So mm-hmm. food deserts and things like that are trauma influenced. Mm-hmm. So um, if you have high blood pressure, if you have heart disease, if you have diabetes, if you have obesity, there's one more, five of them. Uh, they're all affected by a history of trauma. Uh, there's a friend of mine at Morgan uh, University who has a book coming out. Um, it's called I got to get you the name of her book because it's, it's a different term. She, she created a term that, that, um, well, Survivonomics, that's the name of her book. The Economy of Surviving. Okay. 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 One of my cousins, whose name is Heather McGee, I'm really plugging a lot of people today, uh, just was on uh, MSNBC over the last month talking about her book, which looked at the cost of racism. So there, I'm saying there is research out there. Mm-hmm. We need to read it and know about it. Like, mm-hmm. I, was my cousin. I didn't know she wrote that book until I saw her on, like, what the heck are y'all doing on MSNBC? When did she write a book? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yep. like, it is out there. So here's where, and, so here's, so here, so I heard everything you said, and here's where you don't convince me. This is the area that does not convince me about trauma-informed care. And this is what was missing in these two reports. And that is the relevancy and the issues and the unnamed traumas that specifically men go through that don't get identified as trauma. For instance, for instance, there are these things called ACEs, adverse childhood, childhood experiences. experiences. Yes. And of the ACEs, there are two in particular, one about the impact of incarceration and the one about the impact of separated parents. But there isn't one in there of fatherlessness, father absence. Father absence should be an ace. It is parent absence, right? I'm saying father because I'm in a father's space, but parent absence should be a 
ace. There is no doubt in my mind that it should be an ace because it has an impact on a child's life, to your point, known and unknown, that becomes unresolved and pops up when they're 35 years old and and they're triggered. And the next thing, people are trying to figure out why is this happening and blah, 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 that end. So that's one of them. The other place that it doesn't happen and that we don't talk and describe about is the and folks hate this term because of the origin of where it comes from. And I get all that. I've done all my research. I know where the word comes from, but that doesn't negate the importance of understanding the nature of what the word literally means. And that is alienation. When fathers are alienated from their children, it is a level of trauma that triggers a lot of horrid responses that we see in the news every day. Kidnapping, murder, abandonment, all kinds of things that become as a result of not addressing that this is an individual who is, to your point earlier, grieving over the absence of a connection with their child. Regardless of what happened and transpired romantically. We ain't talking about all that. Nothing outside of, of outside of murder and and abuse, right? Those things we're clear about. But I'm talking outside of those spaces. I'm talking about because I just don't like your new girlfriend or I just don't like your new boyfriend or I just don't or I have an ace that I haven't agreed. Any of those reasons are not a good enough reason to ever alienate a child from their parent, not just their fathers, but their mothers as well, right? And it is in those two areas when it comes to trauma-informed care that I am the most concerned about when it comes to men. Because as I hear us talk to agencies, then people begin to embrace this whole notion of identifying trauma. It does absolutely no good if you're working for men and you can't identify what trauma is for that individual. Or if you see something and you don't identify it as a trauma. So if he comes in and he says, doctor, you said, well, what's going on? Why are you so mad? What's going on with you? Well, you know, I haven't seen my, you know, I haven't, my wife and I got separated and I haven't seen my kid in six months. And, you know, when child support and blah, 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 and immediately as a practitioner, well, well, let's deal with your child support. Whoa, 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 whoa. He just said he hasn't seen his child in six months. We ain't going past that until we resolve what that and what kind of impact is that I'm telling you, and then I'm gonna stop here because I want to hear what you have to say about this. Every time in Atlanta now, Dr. Stevenson, that a report comes on in the news and it has something to do with a child missing or um, murder of a spouse, murder of a girlfriend my heart sinks and the first thing I say to myself is please don't let this be over. The inability to deal with a relationship and now that inability to do that has caused you to do something that harms either your children, yourself, or the parent of your child. And that's where this stuff misses me in terms of making sure 
that people understand as they're talking about trauma-informed care, that it is critical to understand not only for fathers, for moms and children as well. I think we just do a better job at that. But for men in particular, that we have to be able to ensure that agencies understand what trauma looks like for men. I want to add one to you, for you. Um, and I absolutely agree with the two things you said are missing from the ACEs. Uh, I would like to add uh, disrespect mm. because the way alienation sometimes shows itself and what makes it sometimes intolerable for the man to keep, keep in the battle is I cannot tolerate the disrespect. I, the, people don't even label it disrespect. One of the generational lessons in our society is the perception that men are dogs. Mm. Okay. Nobody pays attention to the fact that the term men or dogs is a slavery related term. It's how the master used to refer to the men because they were no better than dogs. They thought they could treat them like dogs. And when men started, when um, uh, after slavery ended and all the changes that occurred in the society, came about, men could not find a job. They could not always, they could not work. They, they would disappear. Like all these things happened to men that women were somewhat insulated from in really bizarre ways. Uh, it became a myth that men are dogs. Women started buying it as a way to find great relationships. And then it became a way to treat men. Because mm-hmm. I don't have to respect you. You haven't earned it. You're not entitled to it. Mm-hmm. I'll respect you when you show up with a job that supports me at the level of life I think I'm entitled to. Well, that whole set of sentences is disrespect. <laughs> there's right. nothing in there that we're doing together as a team. It's like you are not here to be a provider. Like I'm not contracting with you to be my banker, you know what I mean, and be the one that makes my money in the back fence. Right. That's, that's not what we're doing here. So the, the ability for men to meet and experience respect in some real clear ways starts with mothers who punish boys publicly, you know, mm-hmm. or who punish boys, they do this with girls too, but girls respond differently, by hitting them upside the head. Mm-hmm. And nobody understands that hitting, punishing, disciplining a child by hitting them upside the head is not discipline, it's assault. And if it were a baby, it's called shaken baby syndrome. But it's the same brain inside the same skull that you told you not to didn't need, bring me up to this school. You know, all of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So men, boys don't get treated with respect. And men don't get to be welcomed with respect. And women are trapped in the myth that they believe because they've still got hurt and disappointment, etc., and so that is a severe adverse child experience. Mm. Wow. The never disrespect. Gets, yeah, never you're right. Never got to add that one to the to the box. It's those other two that I see. But no, I see right. that one that you just described. I probably see that one more than I see the other two come through the space. But you don't label it. You right. don't label it respect or disrespect. Men go out of their way. When I've come to some of the conferences and things that you guys are doing, which I really miss doing, but when I come to them, I would be fascinated at the way in which the men would respect each other. Mm. You know, the way in which the men would make sure that you showed each other 
proper respect. Mm-hmm. And yet, there was no checking to see if when you go home, do you also treat your wife with respect? Do you let her know how much you treasure her? Because if you give it, women say, he, he respect me first, I give it back to him. That ain't how it works, sweetie. But you still, you promise to love her. So that means you let her know every day you love her. She promised to love you. She has to do the same thing. And that respect piece has to get broken. I mean, it's one of the embedded elements of alienation. Because the, the disrespect is the first alienation. Therefore, I, don't, I can justify however I treat you. Because you ain't heard I'm, I'm sorry, dude. I, I like you. I mean, you're cute and all that. But you know what I mean? And it's yeah. just a hot mess. It just becomes yeah. a hot mess. But that respect so, thing is, uh, you know, for men in particular, that's one of the things I always kind of, you know, allude to when I'm talking and having conversations is that, you know, whenever, for the most part, whenever we're working with moms, we never not consider that moms are women. Right. However, when we work with dads, we want to disconnect them from the fact that they're men. And right. those two things are intimately connected. And where I yeah. see it, right, is because I'm an old Western fan, right? I grew up, my mother watching Rawhide, Wagon Train, all these things. So I still to this day watch. And the dialogue in those things just makes me, it tickles me sometimes because you hear things. But the one thing to your point that kind of holds true throughout all the cowboys is this notion that, you know, Oh, you just stepped on my boots. That's it. You didn't say sorry. Like, it's your boots. First of all, you're out in the dust and the dirt and the horse, they dirty already. But no, it's a level of disrespect. And because of that, we got to go out at sundown, a sun up or whatever, and we got to duel. Like, serious? Right. Just because you stepped on your... But that respect to your point... Mm-hmm. Over history for men, we probably can go back even further and deeper than that, right? To talk about the level of high moral value where we place this thing called respect up there, you know, for men. And we don't care who it is who re- disrespects us. There is a reaction that happens to it. And I think a lot of times, you know, I think we're both, I, don't, I can't gauge which who does it who does it more, who does it best. But, you know, when you're talking to these guys, there's always this element in there of, you know, she, she disrespected me. Exactly. Right. This is fascinating. We, we do this every time we get together. We'll start over here and then go all around. Because <laughs> there's that, so many layers in what we're talking about. Yeah, and we got to, that's what I mean about the collective conversation. We got to have it all somewhere. And then everybody can go away and do their own individual pieces of it to kind of make sense of it. So when we have a collective conversation, we can make common sense out of that. But because we never do that, I'm making my common sense over here. Someone else is making their common sense over there. Someone else is doing it over there. And never between the two are meeting to make common sense for us all so that we can get this thing we call life and family right. And that is... Um, you know, I think it is our, um, our, has to be our calling over the next 20 years 
for black communities, for this world in particular, for this country in particular, because I think family as a notion is deteriorating in our conversation and how we think about families and what we do for families, you know, across the board. But more specifically for black and people of color um, around this country, um, family is something that we literally got to stop and just take some time to kind of figure this thing out, particularly from the mental health aspect, because I think that's where we're missing it. We're missing it because we're all hurt by something. I would add love as a central mm-hmm. component to tie all of that that you just said together. Because mm-hmm. if we all figure out that we come from love, we want it, we want to give it, we want to receive it. It is the tie that binds, it's the reason we have children, it's the reason we have marriages. So that love has a place to live and grow. Wow. And when you just go beyond that family, it becomes a, a, a thread across the whole community. And then it becomes a thread across the city. I mean, it just, if we keep love at the center of everything that we're doing. Wow. Tell everybody how they can get in contact with you. I'm not, because I don't need to have another client. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't call me. Just listen to my words of wisdom. Don't be hollering. Ask me no questions. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it. Listen, if you got a question for her, call me. And I'll, I'll answer it to the extent that I can answer it. If not, I'll call on the bat line on the back end, get your answer, and I'll respond to you. And you know how to contact me. Dr. Stevenson, thank you so much. It is always a pleasure. I am deaf. There are so many things that you and I have to unpack. So I'm going to be harassing you to come back to so that we can stay specific. And if there anything that yeah. there's anything that you want to get specific on and really kind of talk about that people need to know um, to strengthen their families, just let me know and we can hop on and you know we can have these conversations. So this conversation that we're having enlightens people. And if it's doing the best job is saving people because that's what we need to do with our people. We need to save them. So to all of you who are listening to I am dad podcast, thank you so much. I appreciate you. And I love you. There's absolutely nothing you can do about it. And you know how I like to leave you always be kind to others as you are kind to yourself, or you might find yourself by yourself. Always shoot high for your goals, because even if you miss you'll be amongst the stars. And as my good friend and mentor, Art Mitchell, used to always say to me, it's nice to be important, but it's much more important to be nice. Until next Sunday, God bless you. Peace out. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. You've been listening to I Am Dad Podcast. We hope that you have been informed, encouraged you to think, or even inspired your heart for the love of dads. The conversation does not end here. Come back and join us next week. Same time, same place. Or you can continue the dialogue on our I Am Dad Facebook page. We also invite you to listen to past episodes, learn more about us, and keep up with special activities by visiting IamDadPodcast.com. That's IamDadPodcast.com. Until next time, I leave you with this reminder of manhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child... I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Because of this reminder, I will always understand that I am dad, period.